0: You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you all to the June 2023 edition of Editor's Picks. And I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, I will begin by speaking to Alicia Wolfert, Latvia, Mohamed, and Yvonne Lee on behalf of all the authors of a paper entitled "Pain Mechanisms Associated with Disease Activity in Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis Treated with Disease-Modifying Anti-Rheumatic Drugs: A Regression Tree Analysis." The authors will give you an overview of their paper.
1: The main point that we think is that rheumatologists should really recognize that there are, you know, these pain processing pathways, which um, some of which are possibly independent of the inflammation of itself, and that this likely affects assessment of disease activity in our patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and that rheumatologists really should consider what composite disease activity measures, such as the DAS twenty eight are telling them, you know, are they high because of these abnormalities in pain processing, which may or may not be related to actual inflammation or um, are, they high, are they really high because of active joint inflammation and what implications they may have um, in terms of how you think about how to treat the patient, whether you want to escalate DMART therapy or whether it may be appropriate to more carefully kind of um, characterize the pain. And decide whether there are other options to treating that pain instead of um, advancing the immunosuppression. And you know, I think, like like we mentioned earlier, you know, while it would be amazing for rheumatologists to be able to assess pain processing mechanisms by quantitative sensory testing during clinical visit, this is likely infeasible um, given current work- workflows and this, the need for significant training. Um, but I think still um, we can take away important messages that it's important to. Um, Look at think about central pain processing and how that affects our treatment decisions.
0: I hope you enjoyed listening to the authors who gave an overview of their paper entitled Pain Mechanisms Associated with Disease Activity in Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis Treated with Disease Modifying Anti-Rheumatic Drugs, a regression tree analysis. I hope you all listen to the full interview and read the full article and also read the editorial by doctors Daniel McWilliams and David Walsh entitled Inflammatory and Non-Inflammatory Disease Activity in Rheumatoid Arthritis, The Impact of Pain on Personalized Medicine. All three are available at our website at www.jroom.org. The next paper I would like to highlight is entitled Clinometric Validation of the Assessment of Spondylarthritis International Society Health Index in Patients with Radiographic Axial Spondylitis. In exit ex- trials, and is by Kelts and colleagues. The aim of the study was to assess the psychometric prob- properties of the Spondyloarthritis International Society Health Index, or SSHI, in evaluating the function, disability, and health in patients with radiographic spondyloarthropathy. The authors studied 657 patients in a post-hoc analysis from two studies which were placebo-controlled randomized phase 3 studies of ixekizumab in patients with radiographic axial arthritis. Overall, the functioning and health were impaired in this patient population prior to entry as measured by the ASAS high. The investigators found that the intraclass correlation Coefficients or ICC for test retest reliability showed adequate agreement between the two studies. There was there were moderate to good correlations between the ASIS high and the BASDI at both baseline and week 16. They found moderate to good correlations for the ass high and the BASFI, BASDI, BASDI, ASTAS and pga changes from baseline to week 26 the authors concluded that the asses high demonstrated reliability construct validity could have group discrimination and demonstrated responsiveness in adults with radiographic axial spondyloarthropathy in two clinical trials. In an accompanying editorial entitled Expanding the Assessment of Overall Functioning and Health Statics in Patients with Spondyloarthropathy by Wilson Bautista Milano from the rheumatology department University Hospital Foundation Bogota and the School of Medicine University Universidad El Bosque Bogota Colombia. In this editorial, Dr. Bautista Milano reviews the findings of the study and puts it into perspective. Of known measures in patients with spondylarthropathy and gives his view of how this new measure can be used. Reading both articles will give you a better understanding of disease measures in patients with spondyloarthritis, and in particular those with radiographic evidence. Gout is a common cause of significant morbidity. In a study entitled Clustering Patients with Gout Based on Comorbidities and Biomarkers, a cross-sectional study, Al-Durabi and colleagues use hierarchical cluster analysis to identify clusters of different phenotypes and pathophysiologic subtypes of patients with gout and their associated comorbidities. They identified three different clusters in 88 patients with gout. Cluster one had 24 members which were identified by dyslipoproteinemia, hypertension, early onset gout but without TOFI. Cluster two Identified 25 patients characterized by hypertension, dyslipidemia, dyslipidemia, nephrolithiasis, and obesity, while cluster three had 39 members, which was identified by the presence of multiple comorbidities and TOFI. In a post hoc analysis, the authors then examined levels of oxid- oxidative stress and inflammatory related markers, which included 3-nitrotyrosine, tumor necrosis factor alpha, C-reactive protein, interleukin 1-beta, interleukin 6, platelet-derived growth factor 8A, and platelet-derived growth factor. B-B. They again identified three clusters based on these biomarkers rather than only clinical data. The cluster 1A tended to be younger at diagnosis with a longer disease duration than the other two clusters while cluster 3 was primarily of African-American descent and younger than the other two clusters at time of the study. There were no specific clinical characteristics of cluster 2A that distinguished them. However, when they examined the markers of oxidative stress and inflammation, they found significant differences among the three clusters. Please read this article and, in particular, the discussion when the, where the authors review the clinical implications of their study. Neo osteoarthritis is becoming increasingly common in our aging population. The aim of a study titled Responders to Medial Opening Wedge High Tibial Osteotomy for knee osteoarthritis by Primo and college was to determine how effective medial open wedge high tibial osteotomy was in improving symptoms in patients with varus alignment and knee osteoarthritis. This was a prospective study of 523 patients with varus deformity, uh, varus deformity and radiographic features of knee osteoarthritis located in the medial compartment. The investigators divide, divided patients' threshold responses into three thresholds of improvement. 25, greater than equal to 20%, greater than equal to 50%, or greater than equal to 70% improvement following surgery. After a mean of 20.3 months post-intervention, 76% of the patients met the responder criteria, while 32% improved by group greater than or equal to 50% in both pain and function, and 20% had a greater or equal to 70% improvement. The investigators found that older age, higher body mass index, and larger post-operative mechanical axis angles or slight valgus were associated with increased odds of achieving responder criteria, although overall the odds ratios were quite small. When they stratified their patients by sex, an equal proportion of male at 78% and female patients at 76% met the responder criteria. After reading the results and discussion, sections in more detail for a better understanding of which patients may benefit from this procedure. Final article I'd like to highlight explores the important issue of physical activity in an article entitled Physical Activity Habits Among Older Adults Living with Rheumatic Disease and is by Kumthakar and colleagues. The aim of this article was to examine levels of physical activity in in older adults defined as greater than or equal to 85 years with different rheumatic diseases and determine if there was an association between physical activity level and patient reported outcomes or pros. Physical activity was characterized by high or vigorous activity, defined as vigorous activity for at least 30 minutes three times a week, moderate. They defined as moderately active for at least three times a week or low, seldom active. They studied a total of 3,343 patients with a mean age of seventy. 4.4 years, with a majority 68% having rheumatoid arthritis and 83% were women. Overall, high physical activity was reported in 14% of the participants, while 54% reported moderate activity and 32% reported being seldomly active. The results varied by diagnosis. Overall, patients reported a median of seven days of moderate to high physical activity of greater than or equal to 30 minutes per month. Only 4% of patients who identified as current smokers reported a high level of physical activity as compared to the overall value for the study of 14%. In patients with depression, only 7% reported high activity, while 48% reported low activity and 45% moderate activity. Patients with low physical activity tended to have worse Pain scores, worse HAC DI scores, higher depression rates, and worse PROMIS twenty eight scores related to pain, sleep, and fatigue than patients with higher activity levels. Please read this article to get more details of all the associations with physical activity, including a more in indefin- depth data on the differences in physical activity among patients with different rheumatic diseases. In this discussion, the authors review the implications of this study and potential interventions to improve physical activity. The image in rheumatology this month I'd like to highlight describes a 41-year-old female with a five-year history of erosive RA who had been treated with methotrexate and chloroquine for many years. She presented to her rheumatologist with a seven-month history of numbness and pain in her lower limbs, which then followed what she called bruising on her toes, which then progressed to gangrene. She did not have a history of diabetes or of known atherosclerosis. A diagnosis of rheumatoid vasculitis with gangrene was made. patient was treated with high-dose intravenous methylprednisolone, cyclophosphamide, and then subsequently rituximab. See the images of her initial presentation and subsequent outcome at her journal website. The article this month for Panorama, 360 Degrees of Rheumatology, is by Thiel and colleagues and is entitled The Pain Pet Study, How Caring for a Dog Affects Quality of Life, Pain, and Depression in Patients with Inflammatory Arthritis. In this article, the authors review the available data on how pets may improve the quality of life in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. For all you pet owners, I am sure you will enjoy reading this article as much as my dog did. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only the articles I've highlighted, but all the articles in the June 2023 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print edition or the online edition, which is available at www.jroom.org. And I encourage you to watch all the interviews I've had with authors of the highlighted papers and not only of this month, if you have missed previous months. The are available for viewing at our website and our YouTube site. If you have any questions or comments on these highlighted articles or any article in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. And I hope you will listen to me next month for Editors' Highlights from the July edition. Please stay well and thank you.